All right, we're continuing our study on Christ in the Old Testament tonight. And we have completed our section on Christ in Old Testament prophecy. Uh, we've also looked at all of the personal appearances of Christ in what are theologically identified as theophanies, which are appearances of God himself, or more technically correct, in this case, Christophanies, in that all of the Old Testament appearances of God are actual appearances of Christ as the Son of God uh, prior to his birth, of course. And then we're now engaged in a study through the types and shadows, which is a, a huge study in itself. And we've divided that part of our study into seven categories, uh, two of which we've completed, which is uh, Christ typified or symbolized in Old Testament things and in Old Testament structures. Currently, we're studying and finishing tonight, this is part four of Christ in the great events of the Old Testament. And we focused a lot of attention, first couple of studies on the creation week and how the different days of the first week of creation um, pointed forward to the, to the work of Christ. Then uh, we looked briefly again at the flood and uh, saw how uh, the flood event uh, also points forward to the work of Christ. And then we spent the rest of our study last time looking at uh, the sacrifice of Isaac by his father Abraham as one of the most wonderful and um, interestingly layered uh, types of the Old Testament symbolism pointing to the work of Christ. And in all of these events, as I've been emphasizing, uh, some of the other categories of types point more directly to the person of Christ in terms of revealing things about his nature and his character. But almost all of the, the uh, types in events are are highlighting or focused on the work of Christ. And of course, the work of Christ has everything to do with his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So in, in that we're talking about the saving work of Christ. So the study for tonight is going to highlight the work of Christ in a, in a similar way. I mentioned that tonight we would be looking at uh, Exodus chapters 12 and 13. We'll spend most of the time in chapter 12. Uh, I just have one point to highlight in chapter 13. And this is the chapter, primarily chapter 12, that's focused on the great event that uh, is later identified as the exodus of Israel from their prior circumstance of slavery to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh, and how the Lord through Moses saved the people out of Egypt and uh, brought them across the, uh, the wilderness journey and eventually into the promised land. We're going to be focused, though, on the beginning of that exodus, uh, which is what chapter 12 highlights, uh, how the exodus began, the, the actual event that led to their uh, being set free from their, from their slavery. Now, uh, you can ask any, any reverent Jewish person, even to our present generation, I say reverent because there are many, of course, Jewish people that are unconcerned about uh, the, the covenant relationship with the Lord that Abraham uh, represents for them. 
But uh, anyone that is still concerned about having a, a relationship with the Lord through the old covenant, trying to have a relationship through Moses and through the law, um, they will all, uh, with a single voice, point back to this chapter as really the most important chapter of the Old Testament in terms of what defines a Jewish person's relationship with God uh, in that the event of the Exodus is, is really the, the, the defining and identifying event that uh, led to the formation of the nation of Israel. Of course, prior to this, uh, the Lord had established a covenant relationship with Abraham that was carried on through the patriarchs that followed, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, their, their, uh, the 12 sons of Jacob, who uh, then represented the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it's in this event that God does something unique. It's referenced in one place in the Old Testament as God did something at this moment in history that had never been done before and has never been done subsequently, which is he rescued a nation out from another nation and re-identified it, moved it from one location to another, established them in the promised land. And then from that point forward, of course, they continued in that covenant relationship with him. So it's a super important event. It's, it's the defining event of Israel's relationship with the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to look in detail at Exodus chapter 12. Uh, we're going to highlight 10 symbolic connections to Christ and the work of Christ. And then in chapter 13, like I mentioned, there's a single important uh, connection that we don't want to miss Either Now, this is a fairly long chapter. We're talking about a, a total of some 51 verses. Um, I had thought about reading it all the way through, but I think uh, we're mostly, all of us are mostly familiar with the story. Um, so I'm just going to jump in at the, at the key, the 10 key connection points, and hope that uh, none of you are lost in how those connect to the actual historic events of the Exodus. And, and it's why I had encouraged you last week, if you had the opportunity to uh, set aside some time to reread chapters 12 and 13. All right, so what's our first connection point in chapter 12? Uh, the first one we'll see in the first two verses of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, <clears throat> this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. All right, so what the Lord does in this introduction to the event that's about to take place that we now identify as, identify as the Exodus and connects to the, the, the uh, final night that led to the actual Exodus, which is the Passover event, it's kind of an interesting introduction of the chapter because the Lord essentially says, I am, I am telling you to start a new calendar. I'm going, to, I'm going to have you reorient how you mark time and how you understand time in this world, the, the progression of months. Um, you know, we all function on a calendar uh, you know, even in our modern era, you know, I've, of course, got a, a smartphone. And on that smartphone, one of the most important apps on my phone is my calendar. 
Uh, I reference it every single day. I make appointments on my calendar. I, I plan in advance on my calendar. My life is really organized based upon my relationship to the calendar. And while their lives were maybe not as complex as ours are in our era, a little bit simpler time, simpler lives, nevertheless, their lives were also going to be organized by a calendar. But as the Lord is about to do this new great thing in the Exodus, in the event of the Passover, he connects in their perspective before he does it, he connects that this is going to create a new calendar for you. And I want you to reorganize your lives around this event. Now, of course, how does that, the question for us is how does that connect to Christ? And while we don't find uh, later in the New Testament any specific chapter and verse that describes this, I'll just speak now by way of broader connection to what is obvious to all of us who pay attention to the calendaring of our lives, the marking of days and weeks and months and years, how is our calendar, our common calendar, and this is a calendar recognized throughout the world. There are a few culturally specific calendars that are alternatives to the worldwide recognized calendar, but every culture in the world today that has any connection to what we would call the modern world. I mean, there might be some tr isolated tribe in some location that has no awareness of our calendar, but every modern nation has a specific connection to our calendar. And the question is, how is our calendar organized? It's organized, of course, around the work of Christ. So we live in the year 2023. How did we come up with that number? Is it just a random mathematical choice? No, it's all pointing back to the entry of Christ into this world and the whole point of his entry into the world as he defined his, his reason for arriving in this world was to aim toward the cross and the resurrection. He came in order to die and in order to rise again from the dead. And so his work is the core reorganizing principle of how the entire world marks time. Whether the world recognizes him as Lord and Savior, whether the, the world recognizes his work as a saving work or not, they might disregard the meaning of it, but they can't disregard the reality that time and our tracking of it is based upon him and his work. So I see a very direct connection here because the Exodus was the beginning of what came to be known as the Hebrew calendar. It's the reorganizing of their lives according to a specific redemptive structure that came from the Lord's command. And that calendar was valid up until one specific event in history. And the, the event that changed all of that was the entry of Christ into the world. So that's the first, um, and to me, one of the more interesting connections that's kind of hidden under the surface in uh, this account in Exodus 12. The second connection, look at verse 3. This is how the, the event of the, the Passover 
was set up by the Lord. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, what were they to take a lamb for? Now, understand these were agricultural people. Not all people in those days were farmers or herdsmen, but many of them were. And it certainly was an agrarian society based upon both farmers and, and, and herdsmen. Um, so they were well familiar with uh, an instruction from the Lord for each household to take a lamb. But what, what does he mean, take a lamb? What were they to do with this lamb? And where were they to take it from? If they owned a herd, they were to go to their own herd and take one young sheep, a male one, a specific kind of sheep, which will highlight a little bit later into the chapter, and they were to take it from the rest of the herd. And if they weren't herdsmen, if they didn't own their own flock, they were to go to someone in their, in their society, someone in their covenant nation, and take from one of the herdsmen by, of course, it would have to be a purchase. They couldn't just steal a lamb from them, but they were to each, each household take a lamb. And when they took it, what were they to do with it? The, the rest of the chapter doesn't go into this detail, but I'll briefly describe what was to happen. Uh, does anyone know where they were to take? Because it says take a lamb. Where were they to take it? They were actually to take it within their own household. They were to take it into their family. They were essentially to adopt this lamb like a pet. And they were to raise the lamb until the day that the lamb was to be offered as a sacrifice. Now, the reason for the Lord having them take the lamb into their household was what? So that on the day, the Passover day, when this lamb was to be offered, when this lamb was to be slain, when the lamb was to have its blood shed by the owner and the, the head of the household of each one of these families that adopted this lamb, that the entire family that's grown accustomed. How many of you, let me ask, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever been in the, in the immediate proximity of an actual lamb? Been close to a lamb? They are quite possibly the cutest animal on the face of the earth. I mean, it, you could maybe make a case and say, well, this other breed of animal, this other kind of animal is maybe a little bit cuter, but you'd have to argue your case because just lambs are just inherently cute. And what would happen if a family were to adopt a lamb into their household, bring it into the home, feed it, care for it? What would happen? Heart attachment would develop. Now, you know, some people are hard-hearted toward animals and it's no, no, there's no effect on them if something were to happen to that animal or if they were to, you know, be instructed, okay, now you've, you've adopted this animal into your household, now it's time, I want you to eat that animal for dinner. Now, I, I'll give you an example years ago from my own life story. Um, I, uh, I was for a period of time, for a two-year period of time, I was a goat herder. And um, I know it sounds kind of strange because 
I mean, how many of you know and have personally known a goat herder other than me? And that's just not that common in our society anymore. This is up in Topanga Canyon, and I didn't own the goats. I, I was the right-hand man of the person that did own the goats. And um, periodically, we would take one of the goats and kill it in order to uh, harvest the meat to eat, you know, to supplement our food intake. And, you know, I was caring for these goats on a daily basis. Um, you know, I would feed them, I would milk them in the morning, I would take them out during the day and, and you know, watch over them and, and protect them while they grazed out in the open fields. And, you know, goats are, I mean, little baby goats are super cute also, somewhat similar to lambs, but once they grow up, goats are not nearly as, as cute a breed as sheep are and lambs specifically. Um, I had some stubborn goats that I had to deal with. Uh, there's more than one time. This is, you know, when I was somewhat younger and somewhat less mature, but there was more than one time where I lost my temper at one of the goats that I was herding because they just, you know, they, they're very smart and they would just be stubborn and they'd wander off and they'd cause trouble. But even so, you know, and my, my, the man that I worked for who made the decision when it was time to kill one of the goats, um, he usually picked the most stubborn ones uh, because it just was better for the herd, you know, it's less trouble to watch over. Let's, let's, let's eat this one. Uh, but even so, when it came time to eat one of those goats, it was, it was like heart-wrenching for me because I had, I, I, I had named each one of the goats and I knew them and I was, I was connected to them and I cared for them and I was interested in, in you know, my relationship and connection with them. How much more a baby lamb being adopted into the household and there's little children and they form their relationship and now you're the, put yourself in the position of the head of the household and it's time to sacrifice that lamb. So why would the Lord have them bring the lamb into the household? So that they would feel the sting of the loss of that life. That that life would gain even greater significance for them so that when that lamb was sacrificed, they would emotionally be impacted at a heart level by the loss of that lamb. So, of course, what is this? How does this connect to Christ? Um, you can keep your place in Exodus 12. We'll be coming back to it. I chose this passage. It's not a direct... I, it's not a perfect connection, but I think it communicates the concept. This is from John, Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verse 11, this is describing the entrance of Jesus into the world. And I'll read, verse, I'll read verses 9 through 11. And it's all describing Jesus. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So that's describing his connection and relationship to people outside of the covenant who did not know the Lord. He was in the world that had been made by him, and the people of the world failed to recognize him. They disregarded him. 
But even worse, in verse 11, he came to his own. And who were his own? His own were the covenant people, the covenant people of Israel. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So the idea being that the Lord intended uh, the lamb to be adopted into the, the, the covenant community so that when it came time to sacrifice the lamb, the covenant community would be impacted and feel that loss. But here, even that element or that aspect was somewhat lost so that when it came time for Christ to be offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people, uh, the people were not impacted in the way that they should because they had not adopted him into their hearts as a covenant nation. I'm talking about, of course, individual uh, there were individual believers. There were a few true disciples that were deeply um, and dramatically impacted by his, his death. But they were the, the, they were the precious few in the larger covenant community of God's people. All right, the next one, let's go back to Exodus. The next connection I find is in verse 5. This one you should be familiar with, and, it, and it's pretty obvious. Uh, a specific detail that the Lord required when it came to the selection of the lamb to be adopted. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. All right, so the lamb shall be or must be, we could say, without blemish. And of course, what was in view there was external blemishes, physical blemishes, so that as, the, the, as you were looking out over the herd and you were choosing or selecting one, one lamb from among the many that were, that were available, um, one would be chosen that didn't have any um, deformities of any kind or any physical uh, uh, diminished qualities. No, no, um, no blemishes in a physical sense. But this is, of course, pointing in a symbolic way to an internal condition of the one who is identified in the new covenant, the New Testament as the Lamb of God, in that Christ was chosen for the sacrifice for the sins of God's people because he and he alone, this makes him exclusively qualified to uh, be connected to the Passover Lamb. He's the only human being who's ever lived who was internally unblemished at a heart at a soul level completely unblemished because his heart was never once stained by any commission or omission in his actions or intentions by sin so an unblemished lamb and then um, also in verse 5 there uh, just the the uh, the requirement that it would be a male that was chosen. Uh, obviously, um, the Messiah was, was intended by the Lord later in history to be born as a male child. All right, let's look at the next one then. Um, oh, and I, I should connect, for those who are taking notes, you're familiar with the passage, but second in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 uh, which refers to Christ as him who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. So it's, uh, it's that spiritually and sinfully unblemished um, 
portrayal of Christ. All right, the next one in Exodus 12 then is verse 6. And in verse 6, we have this detail. And you shall keep it, and this is after having adopted the lamb into the household, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. That's an interesting detail. Uh, Time of day was important. Time of day was specific. And um, the idea that the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel was to participate in the slaying of these lambs, it must have been a pretty dramatic event um, community-wide. That everyone in the entire covenant community of Israel at the same time were all participating in this act together to uh, sacrifice this lamb that was going to function as the Passover lamb. Uh, I saw a connection there to, uh, again, I'll come back to Exodus. I saw a connection there to, um, this is described for us in all four of the Gospels. So any one of the four descriptions would have been sufficient, but I chose the one in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And this is a description from the trial of the Lord Jesus. You might remember that when he was put on trial, we studied this when we went through the Gospel of Matthew together, but when he was put on trial, there were different segments of his trial. And this event that I'm reading in John 19 is between two of those segments of the trial. So let's pick up in verse 12 of the Gospel of John chapter 19. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. This is, of course, after Pilate's already had a private interview with Jesus. He's asked him very blunt and direct questions. Jesus has answered as only he could. And Pilate is now convinced from his interviews with Jesus that he is not guilty of what he was charged with and what he was arrested for. But Pilate's stuck politically because he... Um, He is a governor who is required by Caesar to carry out Roman justice. So Roman justice would require him to release Jesus at this point. But he was also required by Caesar to keep the peace in the city of Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem in those days typically had periodic outbreaks of mob rioting in which the Jewish people would rise up for various reasons against the Roman rule and demonstrate, or in some cases even uh, openly rebel against Roman authority. And then it would be the governor's job to, to put down that rebellion or that mob action. And he would be exceptionally firm. Uh, some would even describe it as brutal in the action of reestablishing peace. But every time there was a riot, word would travel back to Rome. Caesar would hear about it, and then he would hold the governor you know, kind of accountable for any, any bubbling trouble in his empire. And so Pilate is stuck here. He knows Jesus should be released, but at the same time, he knows that the, the Jewish leadership 
in the city is demanding the crucifixion of Jesus. And so uh, in this circumstance, the, the, the only way out that he sees might, might, uh, might, might satisfy both sides of the equation is if he appeals to the crowd and offers to release Jesus. So from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So now Pilate's stuck because if he releases a man that the mob identifies as a, as a rival to Caesar's authority, uh, not that Jesus actually was a rival, but if he, if he allows that to go unpunished, then uh, he's going to be in trouble with Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. So this is all happening in direct conjunction with the Passover event, which is simply the, the yearly, the annual remembrance and celebration of the events in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, the people in the city of Jerusalem, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, the, the, the connection that I find to this moment in the trial, this, this climactic moment in the trial of Jesus goes all the way back to this specific requirement. Let me reread it now from Exodus 12, uh, verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. The sacrifice of the lamb required the, the willing and wholehearted involvement of the entire covenant nation all acting in a unified way. And here, it's a, a unified obedience to the commandment of the Lord in the actual Passover, the original Passover. But when we get to the fulfillment point, with Christ being seen as the Passover lamb, the nation is unified once again. But now they're unified in disobedience and they are together crying out and their actions of crying out lead directly to the event of the crucifixion. Certainly the crucifixion fulfilled God's plan and purpose for our salvation, but from their perspective, they were together slain with their words, the innocent one, the unblemished Passover lamb. All right, the next one is in verse seven. Next connection. Then they shall take some of the blood. This is after having just slain the lamb. They're taking blood from the, the killed lamb now. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. All right, so there's a detail here about 
a placing of the blood in relationship to each, each household, and they were to place the blood in three specific locations on each household that had adopted a lamb into their house, and when the, the time came, the, the lamb was to actually be offered as a sacrifice or to be slain. So where was the blood to be placed? The three, three locations. Doorpost number one, doorpost number two, and lintel number three. So lintel is one of those words that uh, it's still in use in our culture today, but it's not as familiar. I don't even remember other than talking about the Exodus and the Passover. I don't even remember the last time I've ever used the word lintel in conversation. But it refers, it's, a, it's, it's simply a word which means a beam of wood, and it was the top beam that marks out the doorway. So like the doorway uh, leading into and out of the sanctuary here, uh, the very top part is the lintel and then the door posts, which the, the three together with the ground form the frame for the doorway. So the, the two sides were painted with blood. The top portion was painted with blood from this lamb that was slain. Um, the only thing not painted by the blood is the, the ground. But as a result, what you have then is a framed doorway, framed and marked by the blood of the lamb. So the question is why? Um, the idea here is the blood of this lamb that sacrificed now, once it's painted on the two doorposts and on the lintel, defines and identifies the doorway into covenant relationship with the Lord. In the events that are going to follow later on in, in the uh, circumstances of the Passover night, all of the faithful children of Israel, those that, are, that believe in the Lord and those who are obedient to the Lord, are going to remain on which side of that doorway? The interior side of the doorway. They're not going to venture outside of that doorway during the night because, of course, there is going to be a specific angel that is going to pass over that location later that night, and he is going to be looking down upon the city, and every doorway that he sees marked by the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, he's going to consider to be a safe house. And every house that is not marked in that way and every person that is not marked by, in that way uh, by their relationship to that doorway, every person outside the blood doorway, it, the bloodied doorway is going to be vulnerable to the judgment that's going to fall upon the city and upon the nation. Now, uh, I'm going to connect that um, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to give you the reference, verses 7 through 9, twice in uh, John 10, 7 through 9. The Lord Jesus declares, among the other declarations that we call the I am sayings of the Lord or the I am declarations of the Lord, he twice says in those verses, I am am the door. And what he's talking about is his flock of sheep. And he identifies himself as the doorway into his flock and that there is no other way to gain entry into membership in his flock other than through him personally and specifically. 
So the idea here is the blood of the lamb, who is, of course, uh, symbolizing Christ and the blood he shed upon the cross, is the doorway into the safe house in the new covenant that we identify as the church, those who are truly redeemed and saved by the, the saving sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Anyone outside of that doorway uh, is vulnerable to the judgment of the Lord that is going to fall upon the people of this world. Okay, next detail, verse 8. You might notice already that I'm finding a number, I mean, there's a total of 10 that I'm seeing in this chapter, a number of symbolic connections pointing towards specific elements of the work of Christ. Um, it just highlights how significant this particular event is and how it portrays in, in many aspects uh, the work of Christ. So verse, the next one I said was verse 8. These are now the people inside the house, inside the bloodied doorway. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. All right, so all of the participants having slain the animal and having taken some of the blood of the animal and painting the doorway, identifying it as a saved household of people, um, now are instructed, commanded by the Lord to um, have dinner. And that's, of course, the Passover meal. Uh, the, the two main elements of the Passover, or three main elements, excuse me, of the Passover meal are the, the, the meat, which is the lamb, um, the body of the lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. All three point in different ways forward to the work of Christ. Um, the meat is to be prepared in a specific way, and it's that specific preparation that highlights something about the sacrifice of Christ. It's to be roasted, and specifically here, roasted on the fire. So uh, in, if we'll do this later when we get into Christ uh, typified or symbolized in the laws of Moses, and we'll look at the sacrificial system in some detail together. But of the sacrifices, the first and most important one that was offered on a daily basis in the temple of God was the whole burnt offering. And the whole burnt offering was called a whole burnt offering because the entire animal that was offered was completely given to the sacrifice and then um, was burned in that sacrifice. So here, this is a connection to that element which is um, typified or is symbolized in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in that he wholly gave himself to the sacrifice. There's not one, it's not like, it's not like he saved anything back. It's not like he withheld anything. When he gave himself for our sins, he gave himself entirely and wholly onto God the Father because the sacrifice was ultimately onto him, but on behalf of the people that he intended to save. The unleavened bread uh, is very similar now to the, um, the unblemished lamb. It points to the same concept. 
So the unblemished lamb, remember, that was chosen was because the lamb had to physically represent the sinlessness of Christ. And in the same way, unleavened bread, simply there was in the leavening of bread, which is like if you go to the grocery store and buy a loaf of bread or you bake a loaf of bread in order for it to become a loaf, you have to introduce leaven, which is this this influence, this hidden influence that causes the dough to rise into a loaf form. So this is what we would call, what they ate in the meals, what we would call today flatbread. There's no rising of the bread. There's no leavening influence that's introduced. And while leaven does not always in scripture represent sin, in this case, it certainly does. The idea of the unleavened bread being there's no sinful influence that's present at all in his sacrifice for our salvation. And then bitter herbs, finally, uh, pointing out the context of the meal, which is it's to be eaten with a renewed awareness of the bitterness of our sins that caused him to have to offer himself for us in order to save us on the cross. All right, our next one, and we've got one, two, three, four more in chapter 12. Our next one is in verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your, in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This was just the preparation of the people to be ready to leave Egypt because this is how the Lord was going to cause Pharaoh to eject them from the nation. And then this statement at the end of verse 11 it is the Lord's Passover, and it's, and it's the Lord himself then that names the event, names the, the, the annual continued throughout the, the subsequent generations of Israel's history, the remembrance and the, the recreation of the event through the celebration each year in the Passover. And um, that continues on into the new covenant, but it's now for us redefined. Let me just real quickly read through four passages from the New Testament. You can join me if you want, but I'm going to go through these without much explanation. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 2. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says this to them. This is, this is in the final week events. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so Jesus intentionally and purposefully for the minds and awareness, the understanding of his disciples connects the rehearsal through celebration of the Passover to his sacrifice on the cross. Those two events are spiritually intentionally connected. Now Luke 22 Verse 15. And this is at the, uh, just at the night of the la- what we call the Last Supper. Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh, the, the emphasis there is not on because that's what the Last Supper was, and we sometimes lose the context. 
when we refer to the Last Supper, the Last Supper was a Passover celebration shared between Jesus and his disciples. And um, it's not just that Jesus said to his disciples at night, I've earnestly desired to eat a Passover with you. I just love it every year when this comes around. I'm glad to have one last Passover to share with you. That's not the point of what he's saying. What he's saying is, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. This being the the emphasized or focal point word. The idea is that though every year, they've been together a total of how many years now? Three years. Every year they've celebrated the Passover together. When it comes around on the calendar, every faithful Israelite stopped what they were doing and celebrated Passover that night. Uh, So he's already celebrated two Passovers with his disciples, but he's earnestly desired to eat this one with them because this one is connected to the events that are leading to his sacrifice on the cross. And he has an earnest desire to fulfill what the Passover is symbolically pointing to. Okay, John chapter 13. And this is the beginning of John's account of the Last Supper. And John introduces it this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, the connection between the Passover from ancient times and now the fulfillment of what the Passover had always symbolically prepared their hearts and minds to later understand. Uh, the, The original Passover meal, yes, it's connected to a real event in history where God saved them out of Egypt, but it ultimately has a much greater meaning and significance connected to the events and the sacrifice of Christ. And then finally, 1 Corinthians, this is the most direct and obvious one anywhere in the New Testament in terms of connecting the Passover to Christ. And this is from Paul's teaching. It's interesting too, because this is... uh, the Corinthian church was a primarily Gentile church. Every, every first century Christian church had some Jewish membership as part of the congregation because Paul typically in his, in his planting of new churches, as he would go into new cities and bring the gospel where it had never been brought before, he would always start where when he came to a new city to preach the gospel? He'd always go to the synagogue first. And um, many times, many of the people in the synagogue disregarded what he had to say or rejected the message that he brought. But in almost every case, there were some who, whose hearts were open and receptive and, and believed the message. And they became the, the foundation of the new church that was started in the city. And then, and then the message would be shared with the Gentiles and they would join the church as well. But by the time that the Corinthian letter is written, the population of the Corinthian church is for the most part, a Gentile believer population. And yet, to them, uh, Paul makes this point. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. This is in reference to the Passover meal and the unleavened bread that was to be eaten. And there was a whole uh, feast of 
seven days of unleavened bread in which the Israelites were commanded in the law of Moses to go through their household and look for any, any leaven within their household and to remove it from the household before the bread was prepared. And this is Paul then using that imagery to describe how believers are to search out sinful influences in their life and remove them. But then he connects it in a greater way to Christ. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So if there was any question, I don't think there was for any of you, but if there was any question in terms of finding a new covenant fulfillment connection to the events of the first Passover, uh, Paul uh, puts that to rest with his bold declaration that Christ is the actual Passover lamb. All right, the next connection, going back again to Exodus, and we're still in chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 12 now, 12-12. This one's a really interesting one to me, and one that's often overlooked in a consideration of the types of Christ in the, in the Exodus and Passover. The Lord says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And then this phrase, and on all the gods of Egypt, gods being spelled in our translation for our benefit, and it certainly conveys the meaning, gods being spelled with a little g rather than a capital G, lowercase g rather than a capital G, because the Lord is not saying that the gods worshipped by the Egyptians were actual, real gods. Um, their gods, like all other idolatrous gods throughout world history, are invented gods, made up gods, but nevertheless considered by the people gods. So he refers to them in that way. The Lord says, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. That's plural. It's more than a single judgment. I am the Lord. All right, so what's going on here? What's, wh why is that so important on the night of the Passover, and how does that connect to Christ? Well, uh, the, the, the most direct way I can say it, and this is a study all unto itself, which we are not going to do, but I'll just reference it. That is that the, the events leading up to the Passover night were a series or sequence of judgments that the Lord poured out on the nation of Egypt. And they were all intended to break the stubborn heart of Pharaoh, leading to his eventual decision to let the people of Israel go from their slavery and to release them so that Moses could take them out of the nation on their journey that was yet ahead of them. And of course, we know the story as, as the Lord poured out these judgments upon Egypt, Pharaoh progressively, rather than softening in his attitude and disposition, each judgment only hardened his heart a little further until finally we reach the, the final and culminating judgment. And now that does break the the hardness of Pharaoh's heart 
and he relents and he releases them. But what the Lord is doing here in verse 12 is he's identifying there's a purpose to each one of these judgments. So what do we call this sequence of, of progressive judgments? What's the famous description, category description? What do we call these judgments in history? These are the 10 plagues on Egypt. Uh, technically, that's just a made-up term. Um, and it's not a horrible term. It's just not the best term. I wish it was known in our perspective by what it actually is, which are the 10 judgments on Egypt, because they're not all plagues. Um, like the last one is not a plague, um, but some of them are plagues. But each one of these 10 was purposeful. It was purposeful in connection to verse 12, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So if you, and this is why I said this is a whole study in itself, um, and I'm tempted to veer off, but I, I won't. I'll hold, my, I'll hold my focus on target here. But if you go back through in your own time and look at the 10 judgments that are more commonly known as the 10 plagues, uh, each one was the Lord targeting a specific God or gods that were worshipped by the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians worshipped many gods. They were somewhat like Hindus in India. And you've heard me, you might not remember the specific number, but you've heard me give the estimated, because no one's ever been able to successfully count the total number, the estimated number of gods that are worshipped by Hindus in Egypt, I mean in uh, India. Anybody remember the, the best estimate? Three hundred million Hindu gods that are worshipped. It's, it's astounding. So the Egyptians weren't quite as prolific in their idolatry as Hindus it were or are today, but there were thousands of Egyptian gods that were worshipped. Every aspect that was important to their life in this world, they associated with a god and worshipped it so that in their minds, their life would go better. But there were some gods in the pantheon of the, idol the idolatrous concepts of their worship that were more important than others. And so I'm just going to give you three examples real briefly. I won't take time to turn us to the passages to show you in more detail. The very first of the 10 plagues or the 10 judgments was what? What happened in the first judgment? Do you remember? The, the river Nile, Moses, Moses struck the river with his staff and the river turned to blood. Why? Because the river was worshipped. The Nile River was worshipped by the Egyptians as a manifestation of two of their gods who joined together in a fertility rite and the river flowing from their union became the Nile River and they worshipped it because of that. And so the Lord touched that false worship in a way to demonstrate that he was in charge, not their so-called river gods who happened to be called by the names of Hapi and Ma'at. Those two false gods came together to form the Nile River according to Egyptian worship. Um, another one of the, the great uh, ten judgments of the Lord was, remember when there was darkness 
over the entire nation, over the entire land of Egypt. Darkness so thick that it could be felt. You could not, you could hold your hand immediately right in front of your face and not, you weren't able to see it. That's how intensely dark and thick it was, with the exception of one location in the land, which was the land of Goshen where the Israelites happened to dwell. So the Lord made a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. But uh, which God was being addressed in that judgment, uh, one of their most important gods was Ra, who was recognized by the Egyptians as the father of all the gods. And so the Lord turned off the sun because Ra was the sun god. Uh, the Lord turned off the sun over the land of Egypt to signify that he was actually the father of all gods and not, uh, not Ra. And then, of course, the last, the one having to do with the events of the Passover night, the last judgment was um, the, the angel, the judgment angel of the Lord would pass over the entire nation and any household that was not covered by the blood of the sacrificed Passover lamb, uh, the firstborn son in each one of those households, all the way up, and this is specified, of course, in the text, all the way up to the firstborn son of the one who sat upon the throne in Egypt, who was Pharaoh, was also uh, killed in that judgment. And why? Because the Pharaohs were worshipped by the Egyptians as gods on earth. And the birth of a son to Pharaoh was embraced by the Egyptians as the entrance of a new god into the world. And so this is a direct counterfeit to the future entrance of the true son of God into the world. And the Lord addressed that in a very powerful and specific way. Now, what does this all have to do with Christ? I'll give you this passage. I won't turn because we're already at the end of our time. Uh, John chapter 12 verses 27 through 31. This is a, a, a circumstance when Jesus was first sought out by Gentiles uh, with the consideration that they were thinking that he was the chosen one of Israel. And he chose that moment to announce in those verses these two statements. Now, as he's referring to his impending sacrifice on the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So we mostly focus, and rightly so, our attention on the cross, on the saving element of the cross as it's directed toward us. But one of the most important aspects of the cross was not a saving element, but a judgment element in which all the false gods of this world are judged at the same time that he's saving his people. And so... Satan himself and all who, um, you know, all who are connected to him were being judged and cast out in this uh, saving event on the cross. All right, uh, next two I'll just, do, I'll just cover without uh, turning to them because we're, we're right at the end of our time. Uh, chapter 12, verse 13. And I apologize for running us uh, short so that I didn't have time to develop these. Um, in verse 13, the blood, and he's talking about the blood of the lamb that, that's painting the doorway of the house. The blood shall be a sign for you. And the Lord speaks and says, when I see the blood, I will pass over, meaning I will preserve 
and safety those who were covered by the, the painted blood, the households filled with people uh, on the inside of the blood. And so the idea here pointing forward to Christ is, of course, the blood of Christ creates the only safe location on earth from the judgment of God, which is coming upon the entire earth, coming upon every human being that's ever lived in this world. And even believers, those who are covered by the blood will be judged. But for us, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 uh, declares that our judgment will not be a judgment of condemnation. So our judgment will be a judgment of evaluation, an evaluation of how much eternal reward we will receive for our faithful service to the Lord after our salvation. But for the world, not covered by the blood, it will be a judgment of condemnation. And then chapter 12, verse 46, uh, a small detail, but not an important one in regards to the handling of the Passover lamb. Whatever you do when you're preparing this lamb for the meal, you shall not break any of its bones. And of course, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 33 through 36, later emphasizes in his Gospel account that when Christ died on the cross, even when the Roman soldiers came to check whether he was dead, the usual way for crucified victims of Roman justice was they would have a bat with them. You know, it, it was like similar to a, it was similar to a baseball bat. And they would break the legs of every crucified victim of their justice. And that would ensure, even if the person was still alive, they would, when they were, it's time for this person to die. Because sometimes crucified people would hang on for days. They would break the legs, which would, because of the unique circumstance of the cross, uh, the, the person on the cross would use their legs to lift themselves up to get a full breath. And when the legs are broken, they could no longer lift themselves up and they would soon die of suffocation. But when they came to Christ, they saw that he was already dead. And rather than breaking his legs, remember the soldier pierced his side with the spear just to ensure that he was dead. But the idea being the Lord made an exception because of the Passover symbolism that his legs were not to be broken. All right, and then I said chapter 13, there's just one connection, verse 3. The Lord refers to the exit of Israel out of Egypt to begin their journey to the promised land as an exit out of the house of slavery in Egypt. And I want to connect that to the saving work of Christ in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 in the description of one of the great purposes of Christ's sacrifice for us in which Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So we were, as, as it's taught many places in the New Testament, because of our sins, we were slaves to our own sins. And only the sacrifice of Christ was able to free us from our previous house of slavery and to make us a freed people. All right, that ends our study on the the symbolism of the great Old Testament events connecting to the work of Christ. And uh, next time, the next segment, uh, we will tackle, we've still got four uh, sections of types ahead of us. We'll tackle the next one on my list. And next week, Lord willing, David's back 
with a study in the book of Esther. So God bless you.